So our lectionary readings every Sunday uh, often are bound together by a common theme or thread. If you read them carefully enough, you can, you can see that. Now, I will be the first to admit that's more apparent on some weeks than others. There's some weeks I read through the readings and go, okay, I'm really having to search for, like, what's the common thread here? There you go, drag strip. Uh, today it was not one of those Sundays. The big idea felt pretty consistent and clear in the readings, if you just heard those. The common theme is a hope of God's deliverance and for God's salvation in a very ultimate sense. God showing up and setting things right. So every passage today is about the coming of the Lord in a very definitive sense. It's very eschatological, really. Uh, the day of the Lord. You heard that name us. We're going to talk about Amos today. Uh, the second coming of Jesus. You heard about that probably in Matthew 25. Our desire for deliverance on a grand scale. You heard that in the psalm. It's all there. First Thessalonians, about the second coming of Jesus and what that's going to look like. So let me tease that out just a little bit. So in our gospel passage today, uh, in Matthew 25, in the parable, okay, it's clearly it's about the second coming of Jesus, the source of our salvation. Okay? It's about that heavenly wedding banquet. That is the picture. Christ is the bridegroom, we're the bride. That's the picture there. Amos speaks of the day of the Lord. A, that's a day of deliverance, a day of vindication. For all, uh, over all of Israel's enemies. So in both passages, people are expecting uh, God's favor. They are presuming his blessing. He's, they're presuming that God is going to be uh, on their side or defined in their favor when he shows up. He's going to show up. He's going to set things right sort of for me, for us. But instead, what they discover is the opposite. They presume grace, but they receive rebuke or they receive judgment. They're shocked to find out that God might be arrayed against them and what they're about. In, <clears throat> in Amos, they expect light, but they experience darkness and gloom. In Matthew, they're unprepared. Uh, the, bride, the, um, the bridegrooms are unprepared, and they assume they can arrive late to that wedding banquet. But instead, they're shut out. So God turns expectations upside down. Uh, you ever been there? God ever taken your expectations and... Flip them on their head. Am I the only one? Seriously? Wow. Okay. All right. You're awake. You're with me. Good. Excellent. Caffeinated. That's just two of our passages this morning. That's just Amos and Matthew. But we are going to be in Amos today. So who is Amos? Exactly. Uh, you probably don't spend a lot of time in Amos. That's okay. He's a minor prophet. He was a shepherd. Um, he was a very earthy man of the fields. He was not a professional uh, prophet, if you want to call it that, like, or a priest like Jeremiah. Here's what he has to say about himself. I'm no prophet, not a prophet's son. I'm a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. Until the Lord took me away from the flock and said, go and prophesy to Israel. Okay, that's Amos. Who's he talking to? Well, he's preaching to Israel, duh, uh, at a time when they're very beat up and very weary. Okay, they're under the boot of the Assyrian Empire. It happens to be on their neck at this time. So they're very vulnerable, and they're very eager for this deliverance and vindication and triumph, this day of the Lord. Amos is the first one of the prophets to talk about the day of the Lord. He did it before Ezekiel. He did it before Joel. He did it before Zephaniah. He's the first prophet in the scriptures to do this. And the day of the Lord is a big theme. I need a windscreen, don't I? Uh, for today. The day of the Lord. Now, this is an idea that is in Israel's spiritual vernacular. It's in their narrative already. The day of the Lord was, again, we're about a, sort of a definitive triumph 
over all of Israel's enemies. Not just a little battle, but a definitive triumph over her enemies. About God fighting for them, bringing them victory. Days of deliverance, their literal salvation in the Old Testament. This hope for the day of the Lord was wrapped up, as you can imagine, in their hopes for a Messiah, too. Coming of the day of the Lord. I'll give you a crude comparison, but I already made it, so I might as well say it. Uh, the day of the Lord is kind of like the Old Testament equivalent of the second coming of Jesus, if you want to equate those. It's probably better to say that the day of the Lord migrates into the New Testament, takes on a more cosmic global scope in the second coming of Christ. Same story, Old Testament bridging into the New Old Covenant, finding greater depth and fulfillment in New Covenant. In other words, not just about Israel's rescue, but about all the saints, all the church, the new Israel, a much grander rescue, a far more vast redemption of all things. So Israel's confidence and their hope in the day of the Lord was a bridge between their past and their present. We, can, we understand this, but here's an example. Think of the Psalms. This was their hymn book, okay? the Psalms. Good example here. Certain psalms celebrate God delivering them from very specific calamities, certain military victories, giving them victory over the enemies. In those psalms, they chanted them or they sang about those past victories, which came from God's hand. They, that's how they recognized it. They remembered these things like the flight from Egypt, the exodus. They sang about it, chanted it in their public worship. And the result was, and I think this was an intended result, was it was to increase their fervor and their desire for that future deliverance, that day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, that theology, was part and partial of their worship. The past informing the present worship. Now we know what that's about. Because we practice something very similar here. To hope, I think we can all understand. Okay, Amos 5, 18 through 40. First chunk, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness, not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and Israel and leaned his hand, excuse me, against the wall and a servant bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Okay, so there's irony from the get go here. Great role reversal. I alluded to it earlier. Here it is right there in verse 18. It begins with a woe. Woe to you. And it gets pointed and very personal here. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Literally, woe of you who hunger for it. Woe to you who thirst for the day of the Lord. Why would you, and there's a very strong you that's happening here. Why would you desire the day of the Lord? Now, think about this. You're a devout Jew. You're thinking, huh? I, I go to temple. I'm a good Israelite. I'm a devout Jew. Of course I hunger and thirst for the day of the Lord. Of course I do. Uh, we talk about it all the time. We, we worship and we speak about it. We sing about it in our songs. Why wouldn't I want that? We read on to find out. But Amos gives them a good reason to think otherwise. Apparently they have not understood something about the day of the Lord. Israel, you're expecting light, but you're going to receive darkness. This is pretty obvious. Darkness you can't see. Uh, your dangers are un, uh, You can't see those. Your enemies are your dangers. They're hidden from you. So it's dangerous. Darkness isn't safe. That's the point. Versus light, you can see what's happening around you. You can observe what's going on. So being in the light is safe. Being in the dark is not safe. Dark is danger. Light is safety. But to even more specific, Amos gives us this picture. Imagine you're in the open wilderness and you're met by a lion. 
common at that age. In panic, you flee, only to turn around to be met by a bear. Okay? Both threats. You lose your life here. But you manage to escape breathlessly into the safety of your house, or so you think. You think you've found that safe refuge from lying the bear. You're breathing a sigh of relief, only to receive a fatal bite from a serpent in this place you thought was safe, your home, your dwelling. It's very unsettling. I mean, it reads like those nightmares that wake you up in the middle of the night. This picture of like predator and prey. And Amos is saying, Israel, the day of the Lord, guess what? You're the prey. You're not the predator. You are the prey. That's why kind of there's this theme of, I don't think you want the day of the Lord. You say you do, but do you want the day of the Lord? It's not safe for you. Quite the opposite. The day of the Lord is not the light you sing of in the Psalms. It's darkness. It's not the hope you speak of in your scriptures and liturgy. It's gloom. A day of flight and danger. Apparently, they've misunderstood something about the day of the Lord. Okay. Second piece. 21 through 23. I hate. I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. The melody of your harps, I will not listen. Man, as I said before, Israel anticipated the day of the Lord in and through their worship. It's very similar to how we anticipate the second coming of Jesus. We do that every single week. We celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and death as we anticipate his coming again in glory. Israel celebrated the salvific victories God provided against pagan nations as they anticipated that final deliverance day of the Lord. They're very similar. Past, informing the present, shaping the future. We get all that. But listen to this laundry list of worship items, festivals, solemn assemblies, offerings of various sorts, music of praise. The whole point is all of it. All of it. And these are all prescribed ways to worship the Lord. These are all ways God has commanded. So I want you to worship me. And the Lord's response to their worship, these offerings... He hates them, he despises them, he rejects them, he doesn't accept them, he refuses to listen to them, he turns his back on them. It's very hypercharged language. You can't miss it, right? Every carefully notated aspect of their worship is repulsive to the Lord. Repulsive. Anthropomorphically speaking, the Lord, the picture here is he's closing his eyes, plugging his ears, and holding his nose, and turning his back. That is the picture. Let's walk through all this stuff, because I want you to get a sense of the weight of this. Your feasts, your solemn assemblies, the assemblies meaning the worship that would happen in the midst of those feasts. That means stuff like those pilgrimage feasts, like Passover. That means the Feast of Weeks slash Pentecost. That means the Feast of the Tabernacles. Those festivals which God commanded and instituted, I despise them, he says. What about the other festivals? Maybe the first fruits. What about the Day of Atonement? Annual feast, not unlike Lent? No, I I despise that. What about burnt offerings? Your burnt offerings, that's the language. This is the atonement offering for sin, right? Spoken of typically as like this incense rising up to the Lord as being sweet. No, that's rejected. What about your grain offerings? What about that? 
It's where you pay tribute to God by giving back to him some of the fruits of creation, right? Which they were dependent upon. No, those are rejected. What about peace offerings? This one really hurts. Listen to this. It's where you burn part of an animal sacrifice on the altar, and then you share it with the priest and some of your family and friends. It's a fellowship meal with God and with other people. Not unlike communion meal that we share. Surely God will receive that. No, I will close my eyes to that, he says. What about music? What about our worship music? Songs of thanksgiving and rejoicing. Again, these were the psalms themselves that they would be singing and taking part of worship. Surely God will be pleased to hear this. No, I won't listen. Every single attempt. And that's why I think Amos is so, uh, it's just so unilateral here. Every attempt that you make to meet with me in worship, I will reject, says the Lord. Your worship is repugnant to me. The Lord just indicted every aspect I can think of, of Israelites' worship, every major category, every ritual, every liturgy, every sacrifice, everything he previously commanded. Now, of course, my question is, why is that? Well, let me tell you why it isn't. It's not rejected because of heresy. It's not rejected because it's offered to other gods somehow. This isn't about Baal. This isn't about Asherah. This isn't about the, the, you know, the cults in the high places. That is an issue for other prophets that Israel uh, gets taken to task for at times. That's not the problem here, though. Okay? It's not idolatry. So, of course, I'm going, what's the problem? What is the issue? What gives? And this is where we have to go to 24. Familiar path, familiar verse. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The problem is an absence of justice. The problem is an absence of righteousness. So God is rejecting their worship because Israel has ignored the marginalized and the poor. He commanded them in so many places to have a heart for and to take care of the poor and the marginalized. The short form of that is the widow, the orphan, and the alien. That's the Old Testament shorthand for it. Prophets spoke pointedly to this very issue when Israel failed to watch out for the marginalized. Amos speaks it. Isaiah speaks it. Joel speaks it. Micah speaks it. And God says, I will reject your worship because you do not keep my command to care for the least of these. Now, that's heavy. It's a good word. It's a heavy word. The heart behind this, the idea behind it, you cannot separate your orthodoxy, right? Your right belief, your good theology, your worship from orthopraxy, right actions, lived theology. Worship and acts of mercy were never meant to be separated. They weren't. It's not enough to come to church on Sunday. Worship the Lord is prescribed. Check it off the list. Go home. Live for yourself Monday through Saturday and then do it all over again <clears throat> next week. Lather, rinse, repeat. That's not biblical Christianity. 1 John 3, 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? James 2, 16, if one of you says, go in peace, uh, be warmed, be filled, but without giving them things needed for their body, what good is that? You can't love God and then ignore or hate your neighbor. It's the greatest commandment Jesus spoke of, isn't it? You have to love God with all of who you are and love your neighbor as yourself. 
You can't just pick one of those over the other. You must seek their good, seek their justice, labor for their righteousness. Thus, verse 24. In other words, faith has hands and feet. Faith has hands and feet. And in this polarizing season, where caring for the least of these as a Christian might get you branded as a socialist, might get you branded as a theological liberal, might get you branded as one of those social justice folks, hold fast. Faith has hands and feet. God would have us proclaim his gospel with our mouths, certainly, word, and to live it out with our lives, with our hands and our feet. So our faith is one of word and deed. I mean, this is just basic incarnational theology. This is essential to live out acts of mercy. It shows that we understand the mercy of God for us because we extend it to other people. Now, I suspect that that's the reason Amos talks about water here, right? This poetic language of water washing over us. But why water? Well, I have an idea about that. I have a theory. I think the first part is you have to have water to survive. You must have it. It is essential. And in the desert, all the more, you'll perish very quickly. Apparently, God thinks justice and righteousness are as essential as water. It's part of Israel's identity. Water sustains life. Water is life. It's not uh, an add-on church program, right? We'll do the mission thing. And there's sort of certain people that do that. But as a church, eh, that's just a separate thing. That's outreach. No, it's to be a primary feature of us, part of our mission. God's covenant people are to be people of justice and righteousness. It's just biblical Christianity. There's nothing crazy about that. But this mention of justice rolling down like the waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, I mean, it's poetic, and it's powerful, and it's uh, alluring. Here's the hard thing. It's a little ambiguous what is meant there. There's a big hot debate on this, and I'll be honest, I don't know that I know where I land with this. But there's sort of two ways to look at what this means. The first way, which is not tremendously comforting, is that... uh, These waters are God's cry of outrage, okay? These are the purifying floodwaters of judgment, not unlike the flood sent to cleanse the earth. So in this case, God is calling Israel on the carpet because Israel has become one of his enemies. The day of the Lord, light becoming darkness for them. Reversal of what they thought. Now, this is pretty chilling, pretty unsettling for me. That's one. There's a strong case to be made for that. There's another case. Or are these waters, the waters of justice and righteousness, are they an inspired call to repent? Right? God's reprimand, reminding Israel of who he's called them to be. In which case, there's more than a glimmer of hope here. Again, I, I wrestled with this all week. I don't know quite where I land with it. It's, it's unclear. Uh, there are godly people on both sides of that argument. There really are. Who hold to the scriptures. It might just be a little of both in in this sense. God's judgment and discipline in the present with hopes of repentance and restoration in the future. Maybe that's it. God's discipline always has a redemptive trajectory. It's never just punitive. It's always, we're brought low to be elevated again, to be rebuilt. So perhaps it's both. But it is intended to unsettle us. As poetic as it is, it's an to unsettle us. Now, kind of move to close here. The temptation is to read a passage like this that is so 
fierce and strong and to brush it aside. That's ah, too intense. Or that's just that's how God acted in the Old Testament. You ever heard that one? Or maybe worst of all, whew, I'm so glad that's not me. That's not us. Folks, a lot of people in Israel thought that Amos' words weren't meant for them either. And it was. So when justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, I think the question we have to ask ourselves, are we part of that life-giving provision for others or are we part of the problem? We have to ask that. So in other words, what happens on Sunday? So our prayers, uh, the sermon, the songs we sing, coming to the Lord's table, our worship of Jesus, in other words. What Amos is telling us is this should matter to our neighbors. It should translate into word and deed. Our worship should propel us into the mission that is Monday through Saturday. God has ordained a connection between what we proclaim to be true and how we live in relation to other people. That's why we're fed and sent. Listen to the post-communion prayer. Listen to the, the movement of the liturgy. You're fed, you're spoken to, and then you're sent out every Sunday on mission, word and deed, belief and action on behalf of those less fortunate. It's the greatest commandment. It's just the second half of it. Let me suggest that if word and deed, belief and action, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, love of God, love of neighbor, pick your favorite polarity, if those are separate boxes for us, right? If we keep those separate, it means that we don't understand the grace that we receive so freely every Sunday, which, ah, what a tragedy that is. What an oversight. Or uh, the other direction, which is, I think, even less encouraging, is that we just choose not to sacrifice, serve, and love our neighbor. We just say, I'm not going to do that. When God rescues you and I, when he does that, and when we truly get, you know, when we really grok what amazing grace is all about, you want that for other people. You want to share that. You want to invite other people into that. You want to say, hey, come to this wedding banquet. Come to this table. That's our call, right? That's the gospel that's been entrusted to us. Not to protect what we have, but to invite others into this amazing story and to share that with them. Let's put some legs to this best I can. And we'll close here. So in coming weeks and months, we're going to have some opportunities to corporately love and serve our neighbors in East Charlotte. Okay, we're, we're working on this stuff as we speak, ways that we can corporately step into that. Uh, as our sacred space committee has continued to look for space, the, the one question that I have in my heart is this. Are, are we just going to get space and just kind of do the Anglican thing in that space? Is that all we're going to do? We can just go find a space and go, this is cool. We've been looking for a building. We found a building. Great. Let's just do what we do and just do it in a different place. We could fall into that. Many churches have. Or will we also, in addition to worshiping, finding our legs there, doing the Anglican thing there, will we also love and serve and sacrifice and seek the good of our new neighborhood and our new neighbors. Will we do that? Will we be people of belief and action, gospel, mission? Will we be Jesus to our neighbors? We're starting a new church year later this month. Hallelujah. How about you? I, I, I'll take a new beginning. I think ad time is a, Advent is a fine time 
for us to begin to own that missional piece all the more, right? To define ourselves through mission and service and, and sacrifice. And simply to just step into fully living out the gospel of Jesus. We will have opportunities to step in. Let's do that together.